Let me uh, introduce Ben Harris. Ben's going to come up and preach for us. Um, so you can come up here, Ben. And as he's doing that, uh, the children, I forgot to mention, can come get these um, kits over here during this, for the, during the sermon. But Ben is, um, ben is currently under care of our church. Uh, he is pursuing licensure in our denomination. And uh, this is not the first time he's ever preached. Actually, the first time he ever preached, he was uh, exactly 12 years old. So he's a seasoned uh, preacher, even though you're only 20. 20. 20. So um, let me pray for Ben as he comes and uh, preaches for us. Lord, thank you for Ben and uh, for my friendship with him, for the, um, the way he's taught me so much, uh, for mostly for his spirit uh, of humility, kindness, and um, a love of you, love of other people, a desire to serve other people, help him to serve you and serve his neighbor and love his neighbor right now as he brings uh, the good news of Christ to us. Amen. Well, every week we go through this, uh, this ritual of call and response of saying, this is the word of God for you, his people. And then we all respond, thanks be to God. And I did a little thinking about that when we were doing that just now. And the idea of the word of God is something I find kind of confusing. But when you read the Bible, look at what the word of God is. It's the message of God to his people. It is a specific type of speech. It's creative. It's transformative. It shapes us. It is what we call scripture. It is this kind of weird thing. We don't really know 100% what it is because the Bible uses that phrase in different ways. But what we do know is, is a creative, transforming expression of who God is to his people. And a lot of people have debated whether or not Esther fits this category. Is Esther the word of God, or is it this weird history book about God's people? But when we look at Esther and we read it, Esther has a uniquely transformative nature about our people. It changes the church when we read it. Because we don't just see a history. We see a history where God has interjected himself, a history where God has become part of the community of faith and made it so that these people will continue to be preserved and be changed to be more like him. So for as much debate as there has been about Esther being in the Bible, it's still there and it's still good. So we're at the very end of the book. The, uh, the last things that were read today were the last bit of the book. We're finishing up this series. So just to get a bit of a recap to remember what's happened so far, the book begins in, Queen, in King Xerxes' office in his feasting area. He summons Vashti up to be put on display and objectified by a bunch of drunk men. She refuses and is no longer queen. So we see the story transition to focus on a Jewish girl who is now called Esther. She is abused and objectified and kidnapped by the king, forced to be the queen of this empire. You see Haman, when the officials in the empire rise up, speak out against Mordecai, who refused to be subjected to this maniac, as the book depicts him as. We see this decree sent out from Haman to kill all the Jews, this genocide that rises up. We see Esther stand up against this, quest 
that her people be able to defend themselves. We see Haman fall. We see his pride leading to his death. And the climax of the book is that. Haman is defeated. Evil itself is judged. And that's already happened. We're coming off the backside of this climax. We're coming on the ripples of the stone thrown into the water. And that's what we're looking at tonight. So, starting in chapter 8, we see the first little bit of this ripple effect coming off. We see everything that Haman has owned being given to Mordecai. Mordecai being the hero of the story, one of the heroes. Haman's pride, his sin found him out. He died on the very device that he wanted to kill Mordecai on. Saw last week. All of his ego, his hatred, the vindication he sought for his own pride by killing all the Jews. They're empty, they're vain, they're false promises. They didn't get him anywhere. All they got him was killed. But what we see is Mordecai, his, his humility, his reliance on God's faithfulness, his trust in the God that promised deliverance for him and his people. We see it vindicated. We see what was taken away from Haman being given to him, a sign of God's blessing for the people who remained faithful to him. We see the humble Mordecai being honored where the prideful Haman fell. The next ripple that came out of this is the, the primary part of this passage. You see the death of Haman from last week being the boulder falling down the mountain that trickled as an avalanche. So all the Jews' persecutors that have come up to this point fall after Haman. They posed a threat to the Jews, but the Jews came up, defended themselves. And where Haman's sin was judged, so was the sin of thousands of Persians who stood against God's people. Now if us living after the cross, after Sermon on the Mount. We sometimes see violence and bloodshed, and we coil back at it. We see war, we see self-defense, we see violence, and we say, that's not, that's not the Christian way, that's not the way God wants things. Because we're looking at things through the eyes of Paul, we're looking at, don't avenge yourself, don't repay evil for evil, do not resist your enemy. Love the one who persecutes you. So it's easy for us to look at Esther's story and say that the Jews were sinning. That's, uh, as Ben Milner pointed out to me probably 40 times, that's not the way the Jews saw it. The Jews saw this violence, they saw this defense of their people as God's own hand defending them. They saw it as liberation from persecution. They saw it as a new exodus from death. They saw this as God working a miracle through this violence. Something that I have to remind myself a lot is I cannot be more merciful than God. We cannot see the things that we have a natural tendency against as outside of God's plan. But if you look all the way down through 8, all the way down through 9, you see this repeated over and over again. 
is that the Jews rose up against their enemies. They defended themselves. And in that, God took care of his people. God didn't leave them. God did not see fit for them to die. But we also see a, um, a common theme of they took no hand on the plunder. We see that in chapter 9, verse 10, chapter 9, verse 15. This violence was not simply done to gain power. It was not done out of greed or for personal gain. It was done simply as a means of liberation. It was done simply as God's rescue of his people. And that's really what I want to focus on, is this theme of uh, liberation, this theme of faithfulness, this theme of God seeming absent. We see violence, we see oppression, we see objectification. We never hear God's name. And that's what I want to focus on. The idea that God is absent, God seems distant, but in reality, he's there. He's working behind the scenes, and that is where we're going to focus on. The central theme of the book of Esther is not the motif of oppressed and oppressor. It's not the motif of patriarchal oppression of Vashti and of Esther and of the vindication of the underdog in the story. It is not Haman's pride or Esther standing before the king now, the theme of Esther is the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. You see that from chapter 1 to chapter 10. The Jews had been unfaithful people from the day they were chosen. Abraham did not remain faithful to the God who called him. The Israelites who had the law worshipped false idols. The very location and setting of the story in Susa is a testament to this. The Jews were meant to live in the promised land, were meant to live with their God in Jerusalem, but they had been cast into exile because they turned their back on the one who rescued them. Every time you see the word Susa in the story instead of Jerusalem, you should be reminded that God's people are constantly unfaithful. They and we constantly turn away from him to fulfill our longings and sources other than what God has given us. Esther and Mordecai lived in a place where they should not because they sought comfort, they sought purpose outside of the God who rescued them. But in spite of this, God did not leave them. The Jews truly deserve the agony and separation brought about by the exile. They deserve the genocidal holocaust that Haman planned. They deserve the oppression. They deserve the rape of their people, the kidnap to be brought to the king's palace because they had sinned and they had been unfaithful. But this is not all that they received. Israel did not just get the God-forsakenness. They did not just get distance and anger from God. They got liberation. They got deliverance from death. And for Esther and Mordecai, they got blessings and honor when the proud Haman and Persians got destruction and shame. 
the God who seems so distant and angry in Esther, who never mentions his name, by the way. God is never mentioned in this book. One of the reasons he seems so distant, because we're never reminded that he's there. The God who seems so distant, so angry for sending his people into exile, so hidden behind years of suffering and humiliation, proves himself to be a God who is faithful, who is loving, and who works salvation for his people. It was when the Jews seemed, and I assume felt, most forsaken by God, it was when the Jews could not even mention his name, when it seemed improper and impious to even write down the name of the God who gave them the law, who brought them into covenant, the God who saved them. It was when he seemed most distant that this very same God worked salvation for his people. It is the God who is hidden, the God who is high up on Sinai, the God who is unmentioned, who vindicates Esther's suffering, who honors the humbled Mordecai, and who preserved his people and who judged Persia's sin. It was the God who seemed like he didn't care anymore, who saved them. It was the God who we see as unfulfilling. It was the God we see as boring, the God we see as cruel, who was merciful. There's this, this tension in the Bible always of that idea. The God who is hidden, the God who is present, the God who seems wrathful, and the God who is merciful. There's always this pull. But what we see in Esther is that the hidden God is the one who is merciful. It is the distant God that is the one who saves us. It is when we feel most unfulfilled in God, when our longings seem strongest, that God is working out our good, his glory. I want us to take a minute, take a minute to remember what happened in the book so far. Think about Vashti's objectification, the kidnapping and rape of Esther, the pride and greed of Haman and of Xerxes, the humility of Mordecai, the deliverance of God's people through the caring, though hidden God. And think about it. Just take a minute, take a moment. Remember all that's happened in the past few weeks as we've walked with Esther. Keep remembering, keep remembering. And then look with me down in chapter 9, verse 26 through 28. This is the institution of the Feast of Purim, uh, the Feast of Lots, of Dice, it says in verse 27, the Jews obligated themselves and their children and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these days according to what was written at the time appointed every year so that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. The Feast of Purim is a feast of remembrance, it's a feast of, of memory. It's a feast of recalling the God who delivered his people in the present. And if you go into a Jewish community, it's still celebrated. They still see this as important. 
they still see Esther's story as defining them as a people in need of always being remembered. The Feast of Purim was and is still the celebration of God's salvation being given through Esther. You go to a Feast of Purim, it's a time of big meals, of sharing wine. It's even a tradition for a lot of Jews to get drunk at this time. The one day a year a Jew is allowed to get drunk is in Purim. Giving gifts to the poor, but most importantly, Purim is celebrated at the synagogue. And this whole story of Esther is read every time uh, the name of Mordecai is mentioned. The whole synagogue stands up and says, blessed be Mordecai. And every time Haman is mentioned, they stamp, they stamp their feet and they clap their hands and say, cursed be Haman. They see this story, the blessing of Mordecai and the cursing of Haman, the liberation of the Jews and the judgment of the Persians as defining them. They see it as continuously shaping their community. And the reason we still celebrate Esther is because it does the same for us. Esther shapes us when it calls us to remember the faithfulness of God. Just as the Jews were unfaithful, we have also been unfaithful to God. We have gone after our own hunger. We've gone after our own wants, our own lusts. We've been unfaithful to God. He's never become unfaithful to us. He's always remained faithful to an unfaithful people. The purpose of Esther, the purpose of the Feast of Purim, is to call that to memory, because that memory defines who we are. The religion we celebrate as Christians is a religion of memory, where we look at history, the stories of our ancestors, how God's proved himself to be mighty and faithful. Stories of liberation, the stories of salvation. But our religion is also a religion of hope, where on the other hand, we look forward to the faithfulness of God to deliver us in the future. The idea of memory reminds us of God's been faithful in the past, he'll be faithful today. Looking forward into the religion of hope, it's an expectation that draws us, it's a future that pulls us along toward a day when we will no longer need liberation. God will no longer have to be faithful to us being unfaithful because he will make us like himself. The hope pulls us toward God and the memory draws us back to him. And we live somewhere in the middle. We live somewhere between looking back to a faithful God and looking at expectation to him being faithful in the future. And the fact that we live in the middle is why we have Purim. So that with Esther, we may remember the faithful God who worked salvation for us. At Purim, the Jews look at salvation in the past, but then they would look for salvation in the future. They would look to a deliverer who would come to bring them something permanent that Esther could not do. The Jews looked for a savior who was like Esther, who would save their people through suffering, who would not only be willing to lay down their life for his people, but who would lay down his life for their enemies. They looked for someone who would be oppressed and maligned, and through their being oppressed and maligned and tortured, 
salvation would come. They looked for someone who would not bring liberation by hoisting their enemies up on a stake, but who would bring liberation by being hoisted up on a stake by their enemies. This Savior the Jews looked for functions as a true and better Esther. Everything Esther failed to be, this Redeemer would not be. All the longings of God's people who Esther tried and failed to complete would be found in the hope of this coming Redeemer. We know this Redeemer, this true and better Esther, as Jesus. We know him as the one who laid down his life for his people and for his enemies, who brought liberation by suffering, who brings hope to the oppressed Jews and to the oppressing Persians. The memory of deliverance in Esther and in Purim stands as something that makes us hope more for a better deliverance, for a better liberation, a better salvation, not just for God's people, but for God's enemies. And we look to that only in the cross of Jesus. The true and better Esther is Jesus himself, who did not save his people by being willing to lay down his life, but by laying down his life for us. The feast of Purim that called to memory the deliverance of the Jews by Esther, and this feast, the Lord's feast, calls to memory the salvation of Jews and Persians, the oppressed and their oppressors, by Jesus. It is this cross that gives us hope in the past, looking back to it, and gives us certainty in the hope that's coming before us when the deliverance of all people comes when Christ returns to set us free again. So look to Esther, but don't stop there. Look to the one who Esther longed for. Look to the better Esther, to the one who delivers us from both oppression and from oppressing. Whether you feel as if you are oppressed, if you suffer, and you stand with the Jews, there is hope because Jesus saved his people. Or if you're like me and far too often oppressing someone else, far too often treating people unfairly, using them for your own gain, being greedy and selfish like I am. And if you stand with me, with the Persians, know that there is hope because Jesus didn't just die for his friends. He didn't just die for his people. He died for people like me, people like Xerxes, people who oppress and use people for their own gain. There's hope for us too. So with the Jews remembering Purim, let's remember a better deliverance here. Thank you.